0: Welcome, everyone, to another regularly scheduled rerun. As you may already know, twice each month I release a classic episode that I think is still relevant and definitely worth your time uh, while we do some catch-up work here on the back end of the show. Uh, today, I thought it would be a good time to think back to that time just after the election and to hear some of the advice and warnings that people were giving about the media in the age of Trump, uh, hear what people were saying back then, and sort of compare to how things have been going. recently. Recently, uh, Of course, members, on the other hand, get a regular supply of bonus content that helps get them through these rerun days. Uh, a few of our recent bonus episodes, just for example, include conversations about the power paradox, the problem of people in power losing their ability to empathize with those they are supposed to govern. Uh, we tried to take a break from politics one week and look at science for some hope and positivity in the eyes of some bright young kids who dream of going to Mars one day. Of course, politics seeped into it anyway and, and spoiled the day just a little bit, but I, I think it was about as positive as we're capable of being. Uh, then we delved into a bit of the world of women who think that feminism means that men don't have any problems, and especially that some of them are inhuman monsters. Uh, Spoiler, we disagree on both counts. And the most recent bonus show was actually just a sort of a follow-up on the Power Paradox episode with some insights from a listener voicemail and fan favorite Reverend Roger Ray. And besides all of that, our running list of topics to discuss just keeps growing, so there's always more stuff coming down the pike. Uh, Just as an example... Quick look at my list, uh, show some notes on personal financial advice that can fit on an index card, French mothers, rich people who build walls around themselves, artificial intelligence, and the meaning of life. Just to give you a taste of what we like to discuss. And, and to be honest, we, we usually uh, come up with these topics because they're the sorts of things that Amanda and I talk about anyway, and then realize partway through the conversation that we should just be recording ourselves. So basically, you can eavesdrop on us uh, having these discussions on on these topics and more when you sign up as a member at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. And now, enjoy the warnings we were all giving to ourselves about the media just about 12 months ago.
1: We have to fight to defend facts right now in what's been described as a post-truth world.
0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of the show, and get members-only bonus content, please visit the Contributes tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from In Deep with Angie Koiro, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, Counterspin, The Young Turks, Papaganda from Bitch Media, and an interview with Christian Amanpour from the CBC.
2: I want to talk about the role of the media as a whole. Yeah. I was listening to some post-election commentary today, and one of the analysts said he's had enough to hear it with the candidates, and all the candidates did it. They all bash the media now as though the media is monolithic. They're not monolithic. I've worked in a newsroom. Most media are intent on getting the news out. They're on deadline. They're not taking edicts from on high and say, please put out a liberal bent to the news. But as you have in here and as we've seen in, in other areas, for example, with climate change, uh, there is an edict from on high as to how things should be handled. Fox News, this was back in the 90s. Someone actually got hold of the memos that were coming down. Well, about, this was this
3: is, the memo that I cite in the book. hmm. Was something I got a hold of uh, in when I was at Media Matters,
2: right? And I'm talking about two different memos. Oh, sorry. But do, No, no, that's okay. It, in the '90s, it was a big story that yeah. you know they had intercepted emails that said, "Here are the stories of the day, and here's the spin we're going to put on them." Yeah. So you know that that's the brush that all media is being painted with, but that's not true.
3: No, I, I do. That's not. And and the memo I was talking about in the book is I I got a hold of a. A bunch of emails sent by Fox News's Washington bureau chief, which is a news position at Fox, not an opinion position. They differentiate between the two. And there were numerous ones that I don't cite in this book, but have been cited elsewhere, such as before the 2008 election, where this was great. I we I got a tape of him on a cruise ship giving a lecture, talking about how he went on Fox News and called Barack Obama a socialist, even though he didn't believe that was true. In the days leading up to the 2000, and he literally said, "I called him a socialist, even though I knew that wasn't true." But now he's proven he's a socialist, it's like. You just admitted you went on TV and said things that aren't true. He wrote a memo before the two climate uh, talks ago, so that we had Paris recently, Copenhagen before, and he wrote a memo to the reporters covering it, saying, "If you're going to talk about climate talks, you have to bring about how talk about how ClimateGate has undone all of climate science." And he wrote this email at Fox, and those edicts come down. There, look, there is some of that um, at at different media organizations, but a lot of that, frankly, now gets leaked and gets out eventually. There is a bias towards lazy, depending on the reporter. This isn't everyone, but there are lazy reporters who, you know, I'm going to get, I'm going to get out quickly. That's how Richard Berman gets to spread his stuff so well. The guy I mentioned before. One of Richard Berman's tricks, this, this is a busy guy. He is executive director, president, general counsel, or some other fancy title of 23 separate organizations simultaneously. I don't know about you, but that's, that's some quite some employment. 23, 23 senior level positions at different organizations. So what he does is he goes on Fox News. When, uh, when the fight for 15 protests are going on at minimum wage restaurants and says, as sent, pre- as I think president of the Employment Policy Institute, I can, and that's the title he uses as president of the Employment Policy Institute, which sounds really fancy and austere, right? All it is is two million dollars paid from a Shell nonprofit into his consulting firm. When you look at the tax records, as president of the Employment Policy Institute, I can tell you this is, this is only going to lead to robots taking the place of these workers. Now, the problem is, the Employment Policy Institute really does, and you see this group quoted. You see him quoted as president of it. Nobody mentions that it's just a front group for the fast food industry. It's not an austere. It sounds like you know there's there's actually a Economic Policy Institute is a, is a progressive economic think tank. So it, it almost sounds exactly like that. And he uses and that's that's bias towards. I need a quote. I need a quote. Oh, let me call this guy up on this website. He'll give me a quote. There's that bias out there. And look, that's problematic. There's a bias towards. There's a bias towards, you know, evenly covering he said, she said, which frankly has faded slightly in the past few years, which is good where journalists are more willing to call balls and strikes than they were. But there, that bias still exists. And there are a number of other kind of fallacies and coverage that you do have to watch for.
2: What happened to the Fairness Doctrine? What happened to having information equally balanced, especially during times of political election, having candidates get an equal sure. say? What well, there are, there? Two,
3: there are two elements to the Fairness Doctrine. First, the FCC and the Reagan administration in the 80s got rid of the Fairness Doctrine, which led to the rise of Rush Limbaugh and talk radio. But frankly, if you put the Fairness Doctrine back in place today, it wouldn't work. It's because first, it doesn't, it wouldn't apply to most of the media we think about. It Fairness Doctrine applies to terrestrial radio. I'm on Sirius XM, which is the largest radio company in the, in the world right now. It wouldn't apply at all to Sirius XM. We're not under the jurisdiction of the FCC in that way. It wouldn't apply to cable networks. So it wouldn't apply to CNN, Fox News, or MSNBC, because they're not under the jurisdiction of the the FCC in that way. It wouldn't apply to the internet or websites where people get their news from. It wouldn't apply to The Daily Show. It might apply to Stephen Colbert's show on CBS. It might apply to the nightly news, which is still important, and it would apply to terrestrial radio, but there's such a difference in how we got news, which... Get to kind of a, another problem which is when the fairness doctrine was created bandwidth was limited right you can only have so many radio stations on a dial because the am and FM bandwidth can only have so many stations right you can only have so many television stations coming over the air so there was a limited quantity of bandwidth so the regulation of that quantity of bandwidth was a was a necessity the problem today is bandwidth is actually unlimited right there's terrestrial stuff which still is limited but there's Internet, there's podcasts, there's cable TV, there's satellite radio. We, we've created this unlimited bandwidth. Now, I'm one who thinks more voices are better, right? I want as many voices as possible featured. But it's created a second problem, which I talk about in my book, which is a siloing of content. You, uh, My friend Clay Johnson wrote a book called um, The Information Diet a few years back. And in The Information Diet, he says the problem with how we consume information is And he puts it simply, he says, pizza tastes better than broccoli. If we're up here on stage today and Angie puts food down in front of me and said, here's a delicious, greasy slice of pizza. And here's a plate of steamed broccoli. Which one do you want to eat? Most of us would say we really want to eat the pizza, right? But here's the thing we know. We know we need the broccoli. We also know that if we ate the pizza every meal over and over and over again, that would be very unhealthy and we'd most likely end up very sick that you need broccoli too but because we have this multitude of information a lot of people in their information diets just eat pizza they just eat they just consume information that makes you feel warm and good on the inside that confirms and conforms to your preset ideological biases we don't want to be challenged with things That are out there. I mean, one of the great joys in my life is one of my neighbors is a very conservative economist. And we get into very long conversations about how the world works. And I learn a lot by having my ideas challenged by them, having my ideas questioned, saying, no, this is what I think. And I learn a lot by reading information that I don't necessarily agree with. Now, I want to make sure that information is correct and accurate. And frankly, all too often, stuff on the internet, et cetera, just isn't accurate. But if we go completely unchallenged, which a lot of people do, that in and of itself is a problem, one that creates a weakness in our system that allows Lies Incorporated, who essentially are hackers of our democracy, right? Hackers look for weaknesses in computer systems and exploit them. These people look for weaknesses in our democracy and exploit them in the same way. It allows them to do that, allows them to take advantage of these information flows.
4: decided that we would pull some interesting clips from some of the speakers. We have a couple of clips to end the show with now. As regular listeners know, Ralph organized and hosted this conference first in May and then again in September. He calls it the Super Bowl of Civic Engagement, and comes on the fiftieth anniversary of the publication of Ralph's seminal work, Unsafe at Any Speed, which essentially jump started the modern consumer movement. But instead of having a party, which is not really Ralph's style, He wanted to use the commemoration to gather civic leaders of all stripes to tell their stories of how they accomplished so much and what still needs to be done to turn the country around. First, we're going to hear from the brilliant program director for Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, FAIR. Her name is Janine Jackson, and she's also the producer and host of FAIR's syndicated radio show, Counterspin. In this clip, she's going to talk about how the commercial pressures of corporate media influence subtly, and sometimes not so subtly, otherwise well-meaning journalists.
5: So the first thing is information is a public good. Journalism is a public service, but media is a business. For reasons that are not natural, but historical and political, we in the United States have determined that our main sources of information are going to be media outlets that are owned and controlled by for-profit corporations and that they're going to be funded primarily by advertising from for-profit corporations. This is not how it had to be, but this is where we are. So this setup, this structure creates conflicts, creates pressures on journalists to use something other than journalistic judgment in deciding what to cover and how. These conflicts are are baked into the structure is what I want to say. It's not a matter of reporters being bad people, reporters being lazy, certainly some of them are, but these problems are structural. So Conflicts of ownership. I really can't think of a clearer example than Les Moonves, the CEO of CBS, saying, quote, Super PACs may be bad for America, but they're very good for CBS, unquote. Now, he's not lying. Broadcast media make a tremendous amount of money from political advertising. That's part of the relationship. Politicians need media to get their message out, and media companies need politicians both for favorable legislation that allows them to kind of override public interest obligations and consolidate, um, but also for this thing where they back a dump truck of money up to the door every four years for political advertising. That's part of the deal. The only people not cut in on that deal is us, of course, is the public. For us, we're actually harmed by a process where rich people can pull political strings without transparency or accountability, such as super PACs encourage but the point is CBS is making decisions that are business decisions because CBS is a business. Okay. It's just that the impact of their business decisions have effects on all of us throughout our life because television, for example, is not a toaster with pictures, uh, as, as regulators have said, sometimes the conflict comes because the owner of a media outlet also owns other things clothing factories with contracts in Bangladesh, for example, or internet retailers, things that ought to be subjects of journalistic scrutiny. But the same owner owns the media outlet and the object of scrutiny, and so it just doesn't happen. Or owners are just power players in a local community. They don't want to upset other power players like the police, like the local hospital. They, they literally have dinner with those people and they don't want to upset them. All of these structural conflicts affect the climate in the newsroom. So that's the ownership piece of it. What about sponsors? Well, because sponsors fund news programming, they write the checks, they can and do exert pressure, even though reporters will always tell you they never feel it. That pressure is there. Now, I have some some favorite examples, some emblematic examples that I like to use. One of them is Time Magazine doing a special issue on the environment. And they get a sole sponsor, and that sponsor is the Ford Motor Company. Now, an editor goes on record saying, of course, they're not going to talk about auto pollution. You know? And he said, we don't run airline ads next to stories about airline crashes. You know? So, of course, they're not going to when they have a car company do an environmental issue. Again, we're the only ones left out because we pick up the magazine, and we see, oh, a special issue on the environment. We think reporters are making journalistic decisions. What do we need to know about environmental issues at this point? And that's not what's happening. And the fact that he says it out loud, it's not a secret, you know? It's not a secret in the industry, the influence that sponsors have. Different way of slicing it, Coca-Cola sends a letter to magazines saying which sorts of stories they would prefer their ads worth skillions of dollars to run alongside or not to run alongside. They don't they want them next to editorial. They don't want them next to other ads. They want them next to editorial, but only certain kinds of editorial. I'm going to read you this list. Hard news, sex-related issues, drugs, prescription or illegal, medicine, e.g., chronic illnesses such as cancer, diabetes, AIDS, etc. health e.g. mental or physical medical conditions, negative diet information, bulimia, anorexia, quick weight loss, food, political issues, environmental issues, articles containing vulgar language, religion. Okay, um, you know, more, more celebrity swimsuit coverage, anyone, I guess? You know, now when I tell that story, I always make clear, I'm sure some editors got that letter and they crumpled it up and they threw it in the garbage, no doubt. But what I'm trying to suggest is that Coca-Cola was comfortable sending it. You know that that's the that's the climate, that's the situation that they can say to a magazine, "We want the what you and I think of as news; they think of as the ad, the climate in which their ads appear." Okay, um, yes, even public broadcasting uh, intended as an alternative but constrained from the beginning by a kind of short political leash and a consequent reliance on the same corporate uh, advertisers as commercial media. The PBS show Nova runs a broadcast on drones that tells viewers that these cutting-edge technologies are propelling us toward a new chapter in aviation history, but not that they're created by Lockheed Martin, major sponsors of the program. Now, I want to add something here because I think a lot of folks think this is something that we already know. Oh, yes, they just want money. They just want eyes on the set. They want the maximum possible audience. That's not quite it. Media want the biggest possible audience that their advertisers want to reach. And that's not everybody. There's a little-known practice called discounting which means that sponsors pay less to advertise on shows that reach audiences deemed less desirable. There's a study by the FCC on radio from a few years back that talked about the no urban mandate. That means sponsors refusing to pay full rates or even to advertise at all on stations reaching primarily black audiences. Even when testing shows that the audiences can afford are able and willing to buy the product being advertised. In one case, a sponsor said, "We just don't want them in our store. So when somebody says, "Oh, it's not black and white, it's green," hmm, it's, it's still black and white." All the
1: morning, I say where it stops You're
6: everything we say, but I don't pretend to be neutral on things like criminal justice reform, I'm for it, Uh, Coldplay, I'm against it, Uh, or DeWalt's ladders. They're a seamless blend of style and performance. Walking up one is like ascending to heaven on a golden cloud. I'm not being paid to say that, I'm just a fan. But a healthy media diet has to be broader than that. And unfortunately, the way that many of us consume news now is micro-targeted. The majority of Americans, 62%, say they get their news from social media. According to Pew Research, 44% of all adults say they get news specifically from Facebook. That's true. News is now one of the three things that we get from social media, the other two being our entire sense of self-worth and pictures of shaved alpacas. (laughs) And, And fake facts circulate on social media to a frightening extent. You may have seen this quote from Donald Trump online about Republicans being dumb. He never said that. It's not true, just as it's not true that the Pope endorsed Trump, because of course he didn't. But that story was shared almost a million times, which is absurd. Everybody knows the candidate the Pope endorsed was Joe Exotic. They have very similar views on deregulating tiger preserves. Please share this news a million times. But there is now a whole cottage industry specializing in hyperpartisan, sometimes wildly distorted clickbait. Uh, BuzzFeed News researched sites like Addicting Info on the left and Freedom Daily on the right, both of which have over a million followers on Facebook, putting them in the same range as Anderson Cooper 360, and found that some of them were publishing many viral articles containing flat-out falsehoods.
7: Over two weeks, 38% of news on some Republican-leaning Facebook pages was partly or completely false compared to 19% of news shared on some Democrat-leaning Facebook pages.
6: Yeah, and before you say, well, Republicans are twice as bad, 19% is still terrible. And it is not news that there is misinformation on Facebook. Just look at the relationship status. It's complicated. (laughs) The accurate version of that would clearly be, in three weeks, I'll be single, but I can't admit it yet. (laughs) But these sites can warp your views pretty fast. Your newsfeed may have been full of the Times and the Post stories about Donald Trump's actual scandals, but many Americans logged onto Facebook every day and saw shit like this. And this cesspool of nonsense would be a problem anyway, were it not for the fact that one of the people enthralled to it is our future president. Back in March, He claimed that a man who had rushed the stage at one of his rallies had ties to ISIS, something that had circulated online and had been found to be untrue. And when that was pointed out to him, this was his response. There's no ties to ISIS
7: for this man, no law enforcement official, and that this video that you linked to appears to be a hoax. What do I
6: know about it? All I know is what's on the internet. Okay, 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 here's the the thing. Being on the internet is not a high bar for accuracy. If I edited Wikipedia to say that Diane Wiest's real name is Diane Frosted Mini Wiest, (laughs) our next president would believe that to be true. In fact, during the campaign, Trump routinely used his platform to share wildly incorrect information. And even fellow conservatives tried to point out how irresponsible this was.
8: You tweeted out that um, whites killed by blacks, these were statistics you picked up from somewhere, at a rate of 81%. And that's totally wrong. Um, whites killed by blacks is 15%. Hey,
4: Bill, Bill, am I going to check every statistic? I get millions and millions of people. You got a presidential contender. You got to check millions of it. people. You know
6: what? Fine. But this came out of radio shows and everything else. Oh. Okay. OK, 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 OK. I got it from radio is maybe the weirdest nonsense explanation I've ever heard. It's like if someone said, this sandwich tastes weird. And you said, but I found it in a hole. (laughs) If there's something wrong with it, then what was it doing sitting in a hole? (laughs) And that is the evil genius at work here. Weird conspiracy bullshit has always been bubbling under the surface, but Trump was the first major candidate to harness and fully legitimize it. And it's obvious in hindsight, he came along and told millions of people every crazy email you've ever forwarded was true. And that, at least in part, is why he will be our next president. And to their credit, some Republican lawmakers were calling him out on this during the campaign. I'm going to tell you what
4: I really think of Donald Trump. This man is a pathological liar. He doesn't know the difference between truth and lies.
6: He was right. He was just right. But before you think Republicans might now stand up to Trump, I will remind you that by the end of the campaign, Ted Cruz, like many others, not only said he'd vote for Trump, but was doing this. Hi, this is Ted Cruz calling.
4: Uh, I was calling to encourage you to come out and vote on election day.
6: Wow, that is hard to watch. uh, This is Ted Cruz just calling to remind you to vote for a man who insulted my wife and said my dad helped kill JFK. Anyway, uh, life has no meaning. Thank you. I want to die. Uh, Take care now. God is dead. (laughs) Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye now. Bye bye. There is very little holding Trump back. And remember, in January, he will be sworn into office. And there is another wave of nausea for you. It hits you in small ways and large, doesn't it? For instance, had you considered the fact that uh, portraits of Trump are going to be hanging in our airports? Uh, Or that the man who disparaged a Gold Star family will now be expected to comfort the families of fallen soldiers? And maybe you've tried to make yourself feel better fantasizing that he might Google, how much does the president get paid, get depressed, and then resign. But that is when you remember Mike fucking Pence, who might be even worse, because he looks like he's from the 1950s, but he thinks like he's from the 1650s. Oh, what's that you say? Her pregnancy was terminated before birth. Well, clearly, she's a witch. Hold a funeral for the fetus and throw the mother in a lake. And I know, This is all depressing, but it does bring us back to the important question, what the fuck do we do now? And for the record, the answer is not move to Canada. Literally, the only excuse to ever migrate to Canada is if you were born there originally, it's springtime, and you are a goose. That's it. (laughs) That is it. No, instead... We're going to need to stay here and fight. And not just politically in four years when he's up for re-election, but constantly monitoring legislation as it moves through Congress and fucking voting when your legislators come up for re-election in two years. But that is still below the barest minimum of what is going to be needed. Because for the last eight years, we've had a president we could assume would generally stand up for the rights of all Americans. But that is going to change now. So we're going to have to actively stand up for one another. And it can't be just sounding off on the internet or sharing think pieces or videos like this one that echo around your bubble. I'm talking about actual sacrifice to support people who are now under threat. So, if you can afford the time or money, support organizations that are going to need help under a Trump administration. Uh, For instance, If you're concerned about women's health, donate to Planned Parenthood or the Centre for Reproductive Rights. Uh, If you don't believe man-made global warming is a silly issue, uh, donate to the National... Uh, Resources Defense Council. If you don't think refugees are a terrorist army in disguise, donate to the International Refugee Assistance Project. Oh, and uh, also, given these guys' track record, I would also recommend donations to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the Trevor Project for LGBTQ youth, and the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund, because that last one would be perfect if your compassion for Latinos goes beyond, say, I don't know, occasionally eating a fucking taco bowl. And and do check the box for recurring donations, if you can, because this is not a short-term problem. And also, just just for a dash, I'll give you just a dash of fun here. I will point out, if you have relatives who supported Trump, you can give money in their name. So, consider your holiday shopping this year done. Happy holidays, Nana. The Trevor Project thanks you. And there is one more group that I will single out for help here. And that is the press. Because as we've seen, Trump is a masterful denier of both reality and responsibility. He's a man who would kick you in the nuts and then tell you that your penis did it. (laughs) So the press is going to face challenges, not just because Trump's chief strategist is Steve Bannon of Breitbart News, but also because of yet another promise that Trump made. If I become president, oh, do they have problems. They're gonna have such problems. I'm gonna open up our
4: libel laws so when they write purposely negative and horrible and false articles,
6: we can sue them and win lots of money. We're gonna open up those libel laws. Okay. Well, first, there is no federal libel law for Trump to open up. <laughs> and as many supposed recipients of Trump's charitable gifts might tell you, you can't open something up if it doesn't exist. <laughs> but, but that attitude of punishing the press is genuinely worrisome now that he is going to be president. So instead of sharing partisan memes you found on republicgoofs.redneck and <laughs> demokrappy.cuck, you need to support actual journalism by buying a subscription to outlets like The Times uh, or The Post or your local newspaper or donating to groups like ProPublica, a nonprofit <laughs> which does great investigative <laughs> journalism. The point is, if we don't get actively involved to at least mitigate Trump's damage, things will not be okay. And yes, the sun will rise each day, but the continuing rotation of the earth should not be your baseline expectation of American society.
2: Surprise, surprise Never
3: something I could hide When I see we made it through another day Then I say, ooh
5: There are many lessons to be drawn from the 2016 presidential election about how one of the least discussed divisions in the country might be between the shocked and the unshocked, about the irreducibility of racism and misogyny and the connections between those things and economic disenfranchisement, about the gap between the electoral process and the will of the people, and about how folks may be less interested in messaging than an actual transformative policy. There's a lot to think about, but as we try to learn, we need to think about who we're learning from. Because certainly one of the salient lessons of the election is that corporate media are not simply an inadequate vessel for a healthy democratic debate, but are in many ways an active impediment to it. You can start with the absence of substantive issues from elite media's election coverage. An analysis by FAIR's Benjamin Johnson looking at what made front-page election news in the New York Times, Washington Post and USA Today found 47% of such stories to be mainly empty calorie stuff about who was gaining ground and who was broadening their outreach. Only 12% of stories were focused on actual policy issues. And though some of those were valuable, the idea that reporters should cover voter reaction to what major party candidates say rather than seeing what people are thinking about and putting those questions to candidates was unchallenged. Listeners have heard how little focus the corporate media debates provided to major areas of public concern like climate disruption, poverty and police violence. And as for Nightly News, analyst Andrew Tyndall reports that since the start of 2016, ABC, CBS and NBC spent only 32 minutes of airtime on coverage of all substantive electoral issues. That's 32 minutes. And half of that was devoted to terrorism. Well, there may be mea culpas from media about how they should have listened more openly to angry white people. We suspect there will be few about how they should have front-burnered the suppression of black and brown voters through mass incarceration and the gutting of the Voting Rights Act. But what we certainly won't hear will be serious questions about corporate media's insular culture like why stardom goes to someone like Washington Post columnist Richard Cohen, whose post-election offering tried to show how both Republicans and Democrats ignore real issues in favor of retaliatory investigations, with the Democratic example being how, quote, they smeared Clarence Thomas, managing to turn a mediocre lawyer into a monumental martyr, close quote. To insult Donald Trump, Cohen says, quote, "...he has your average Nicaraguan army officer's grasp of our Constitution. He might order the return of torture." Close quote. Well, Richard Cohen applauded the U.S. covert war on Nicaragua, inflicted because it overthrew a U.S.-backed dictatorship, and he supported pardons for its officers, in part because he used to see former Defense Secretary Caspar Weinberger at the supermarket, and he seemed like a nice guy. And for elite pundits like Richard Cohen, torture is, of course, something Nicaraguans do. Though the latest amnesty report doesn't cite that country, but does cite the United States. But then Cohen's on record saying CIA officers who torture shouldn't be prosecuted because, quote, "...it is imperative that our intelligence agents not have to fear that a sincere effort will result in their being hauled before some congressional committee or a grand jury." We want the finest people in these jobs, not time stampers who take no chances. Close quote. Least of all should we look for media to ask about the impact of their ownership structure, how they make their money. But then they don't have to explain that. Their priorities were established early on when CBS CEO Les Moonves spoke to an industry group about the rise of the Donald Trump campaign.
4: Who would have thought that this circus would come to town? But, um, you know, it may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS. That's all I got to (laughs) say. And if you're having a good time, everything will be fine. Yeah, if you're having a good time, everything will be fine. Some
1: preach and prophesy the change is nigh. You can't deny the pressure's high. They can say what they like. Can't make us listen to prophecies of rising seas, the desert spreading endlessly They say we're sentencing our children's children But no one knows what the future holds, you best get busy living for today And if you're having a good time, everything will be fine
8: Yeah, if you're having a good time, everything will be fine In the days since the presidential election, much media attention has been devoted to how Donald Trump will govern, what his priorities will be, who he'll name to his cabinet, that sort of thing. Instead, I'd like to direct attention on the media itself and talk about how mainstream media outlets will likely respond and, in fact, have already begun to respond to a Trump presidency. A confrontational, oppositional press that challenges the powerful is essential for the healthy operation of a functioning democracy. Unfortunately, here in the United States, The mainstream corporate media has essentially been co-opted and absorbed into the existing power structure. So now that Donald Trump sits atop that power structure, there's little chance the mainstream media will do much to challenge him. So what will the media likely do in response to Trump's presidency? Let's break it down. First, what they're not going to do is blame the leadership of the Democratic Party for losing the election. The establishment, of which the mainstream media are a fundamental element, operates like any other organism. And a primary function of any organism is to protect itself from outside threats. The Democratic Party leadership, Donna Brazil, Chuck Schumer, John Podesta and others, are also key members of the establishment in good standing. So they will not face harsh scrutiny from their friends in the mainstream media, despite what can only be considered a colossal failure in losing a presidential election to a certifiable clown. As an example, we can look to what happened after it became obvious that the Iraq war had become a catastrophic debacle the architects of and cheerleaders for the Iraq war, continued to make regular appearances on the Sunday talk shows, in major newspapers' opinion pages, and on foundations and corporations' boards. You know who we didn't see on TV after the Iraq war? Prominent critics of the war, like Phil Donahue, Hans Blix, or Scott Ritter. Their disqualifying offense? Questioning the establishment and being right. So instead of blaming powerful Democrats for this failure, media representatives will point the finger of blame at the powerless, typically third-party candidates, millennials, minorities, and disaffected non-voters, anyone but their fellow members of the establishment. Next, they will ignore or conveniently forget about many of the extreme and outrageous statements Trump made during the campaign, whether insults directed at Mexicans, Muslims, and women, mocking a disabled reporter, bragging about his penis size, whatever. They actually established this precedent during the campaign itself. Early on, when Trump was asked about leading the birther movement, he responded by saying he doesn't talk about that anymore. And for the most part, the media looked at each other and said, oh, he doesn't talk about that anymore. Okay. Late in the campaign, during a debate, CNN's Lester Holt did ask Trump about his questioning of Obama's legitimacy, but only after Trump himself had brought the topic of Obama's birth certificate back up, albeit to inaccurately blame Hillary Clinton for starting the birther movement. Next, the corporate media will seek to normalize what previously would have been considered unacceptable treatment of the press by a presidential administration. We can see this happening already as the Trump transition team is traveling without the protective pool of journalists who traditionally accompany the president at all times in case a crisis arises that they need to cover immediately. It's a small thing, but it's the beginning of much more to come. The press will adjust accordingly. They have a well-established track record of shifting the narrative to suit powerful interests. Take the filibuster, for example. For more than 80 years, the filibuster was a rarely invoked procedural move in the United States Senate that allowed the minority party to delay or thwart extraordinarily controversial bills from coming up for a vote. Otherwise, for 200-plus years, the Senate operated almost exclusively on the basis of majority rule. If a bill could muster 51 votes, it passed. But in the past 25 years or so, use of the filibuster has skyrocketed, almost exclusively by Republicans. By now requiring a 60-vote supermajority on virtually all legislation they oppose, the GOP has essentially brought the Senate to a standstill fundamentally undermining a critical element in the legislative process. And yet the media have normalized this behavior, now routinely referring to bills in the Senate that, quote, failed to reach the necessary 60% vote threshold to pass, or which, quote, lost by a 55 to 45 margin. The extraordinary and unprecedented use of the filibuster to perpetuate endless gridlock? Well, that just goes unmentioned. So you can expect whatever extraordinary and unprecedented efforts that Trump administration dreams up to limit access and press freedom to be similarly normalized by the press themselves. And finally, you can look forward to mainstream press outlets bending over backwards to prove how fair and even-handed they are in their treatment of Trump. For decades, the GOP have been working the refs by claiming media bias and decrying the liberal media. That's not only going to continue under Trump, but it will grow exponentially worse. And I'm sure you can guess who gets to be the judge of what's fair. Soon, even the mildest criticism of Trump from the press will receive a swift and vigorous response, likely combined with an implicit threat. Anyone in the mainstream press considering demonstrating genuine independence or being critical of Trump outside of acceptable limits will learn their lesson and fast. And with good reason, too. Even during the campaign, Trump punished press outlets he felt stepped out of line. Well, now he'll have his hands on the levers of power and he won't be afraid to use them. As our future guide, let's look at Trump's signature campaign issue building a wall along the Mexican border. How much will mainstream press outlets ask him about the progress of the wall? When the midterm elections come up in two years, will they continue to ask him, where is the promised wall? When there is no fucking wall? And there ever was going to be a fucking wall? Yeah, we'll see. But then again, maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe the election of a dangerously authoritarian, xenophobic ignoramus will inspire the corporatized establishment mainstream media to develop a spine, realizing that they may represent the last bulwark keeping what remains of our republic from sliding into a proto-fascist dictatorship, even if it means potentially putting their careers on the line. I certainly do hope they prove me wrong, but I wouldn't bet on it.
6: They say the more things change, the more they stay the same. Keep you so confused. Yeah, but that's all news.
5: There's a difference between bad news and bad reporting. We're seeing a lot of both these days, as each Trump cabinet choice hurls us deeper into dystopia. For example, how do you describe a man who propagates white supremacy, misogyny, and anti-Semitism? If you're the New York Times, you call him a provocateur. If you're the AP, you say his hire is evidence of Trump's brash outsider instincts. Stephen Bannon, the Trump campaign chief executive and recently declared chief strategist and senior counselor, has declared of Breitbart, the website he still heads, we're the platform for the alt-right. That being, by Breitbart's own description, a coalition of advocates of scientific race differences who believe that some degree of separation between peoples is necessary for a culture to be preserved – of online traffickers and racist and anti-Semitic stereotypes and harassment, and a significant admixture of pro-Hitler neo-Nazis. Under Bannon, Breitbart ran the story, Hoist It High and Proud, The Confederate Flag Proclaims a Glorious Heritage, in the wake of the Charleston church killing of nine black people by a guy who said he wanted to start a race war. The site ran stories calling Bill Kristol a renegade Jew, Suggesting the response to online harassment of women is for women to log off and let men enjoy the Internet and lots of stories along the lines of anti-white racism, the hate that dare not speak its name. But if you're The Washington Post, you describe Bannon as a combative guy whose work has openly attacked congressional leadership. The ubiquity of media constructions that are variants of the idea that Bannon has been accused of having ties to hateful extremists linguistically insulate him and raise the question of whether some of these people could ever identify anyone as an actual white supremacist, misogynist, anti-Semite. The Washington Post's Alexandra Petri called out Congress members on this point, characterizing the position as, quote, just because something attracts anti-Semites and racists doesn't mean that it itself is either of those things. It doesn't mean that it supports their views. Who knows why anyone is attracted to anything? Weird coincidences happen all the time, close quote. But with lines like, quote, you say potato enthusiastically supported by the Ku Klux Klan's David Duke, I say controversial potato, close quote. It's clear Petri's critique applies to some of her media colleagues as well.
6: I say either, you say neither, and I say neither, either, 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 neither, neither, let's call the whole thing off. Yes, you like potato,
4: and I like potato, you like tomato,
9: so in this election, there's been a lot of discussion about the role that media played in covering Trump and covering Clinton. But there's this whole other world, a shadowy, weirdo world of media that came to light during this election cycle. Fake news. Sites that exist just to publish fake news that they know will get clicks. I called up someone who's been keeping an eye on the rise of fake news over the past year.
7: Sure, hi. My name is Josh Benton. I'm director of the Neiman Journalism Lab at Harvard. We basically uh, try and think about what the future of news looks like. Facebook, as, as I'm sure everyone knows, has become a really dominant driver of attention to news and to everything else. And you know, Facebook has a has an amplification quality, right? People who who have friends who are in a certain demographic group or with a geographic group or a certain ideological group, they tend to uh, share self-reinforcing ideas.
9: This is about making money. Because Facebook drives the online advertising economy, people looking to make a buck, figure out how to game that system. Five years ago, they might have been gaming search engine optimization rankings. But now, they're publishing fake articles about how, say, Hillary Clinton is paying anti-Trump protesters, And that drives traffic to their sites and to their advertisers. The spread of conspiracy theories and urban legends has always been a staple of the Internet. But in this election, fake news seems to have had a real, measurable impact. From August until Election Day, fake news articles had more reach on Facebook overall than all real news articles. That means that conspiracy theories and misinformation weren't limited to a fringe group of guys in the basement. They were being shared by millions and millions of people, including, for example... The mayor of joshua's hometown in louisiana
7: the piece i read about i went back and looked at the mayor of my hometown's facebook page i don't know him but um i knew he was the mayor and uh he was sharing things such as uh pope francis had endorsed donald trump that was one story and south louisiana is a heavily catholic area so that was a, a significant story barack obama had finally confessed that he was from, born in kenya um, that Hillary Clinton and the FBI agent who was investigating Hillary Clinton was suspiciously murdered, uh, strongly implying that Hillary Clinton was behind that. you know these, these sorts of sorts of things.
9: That Pope Francis story, it was shared over eight sixty thousand times on Facebook. How many people saw that, and how did it affect their votes? I asked Joshua if he knew where those stories came from.
7: Yeah, those were all imaginary news sites. I mean, one of the one of the big ones uh, this past cycle was something called the Denver Guardian, which sounds like it would be a newspaper, but it's not a newspaper. That was the the fake FBI agent murdered story. Um, That story got hundreds of thousands of shares, again, despite being a site that doesn't exist. There are a number of, of these sites that actually actively mix true stories with false stories. So they're a little bit harder to peg. But I do think the the lesson from this past election is that fake news is cheaper to produce than real news. It may has a clearer set of heroes and villains than real news. It is uncomplicated and it connects directly with the emotional core of people. Right. Facebook likes to talk about itself as as an open platform, as a, a, a place where people are sharing the information they want to share. And they sometimes use that to sort of step back from any responsibility they might have to, say, limit the flow of fake news.
9: Facebook has taken some effort since the election to crack down on fake news. But, you know, they're driven by profit. So who knows whether they'll work to redesign the platform. No matter what they do, it's on us in part as news consumers to help stop the spread of fake news. This is about basic media literacy. Before you share something on your social media, click through. Read the article. See where it comes from. See if it's a legitimate news source. And if you see someone else sharing fake news, let them know it's made up. Stop fake news in its tracks.
7: And also just just be aware that there are a lot of people um, on these platforms who are tr- actively trying to fool you. Facebook is is a mix of really healthy news and really unhealthy news and garbage. Don't be too quick to share things that seem too perfect, uh, that that seem like exactly proving that someone is the enemy and someone is is the good guy. That's a that's a tough situation to be in.
1: Now, at the start of this campaign, a network news president said that this phenomenon, while it may not be good for America, was good for us. During an interview on my program earlier this summer, the filmmaker historian Ken Burns asked me, what would Edward R. Murrow do? First, like many people watching where I was overseas, I admit that I, like them, was shocked by the exceptionally high bar put before one candidate, and the exceptionally low bar put before another candidate. It also appeared that much of the press, much of the media was tying itself in knots, trying to differentiate between balance, between objectivity, neutrality, and crucially, the truth. We cannot continue the old paradigm. We cannot, for instance, keep saying, like it was over global warming, where 99.9% of the science, the empirical facts, the evidence is given equal play with the tiny minority of deniers. I learned a long, long time ago, when I was covering the genocide and ethnic cleansing in Bosnia, never to equate victim and aggressor, never to create a false moral or factual equivalence. Because then, if you do, particularly in situations like that, You are party and accomplice to the most unspeakable crimes and consequences. So I believe in being truthful, not neutral. And I believe we must stop banalizing the truth. We have to be prepared to fight especially hard right now for the truth because this is a world where the Oxford English Dictionary just last week announced its word for 2016, and that is post-truth. We have to accept that we have had our lunch handed to us by the very same social media that we have so slavishly been devoted to.
2: Christian, you recently gave a speech in which you said that it was important for journalists not to lose their nerve now in light of the backlash they're getting, but to recommit to real reporting. Why do you believe that's so imperative right now?
1: Well, for several reasons, Diana, good to be with you. Number one, the uh, Donald Trump campaign suddenly put the fate and the safety and the freedom of American journalists right in the focus. And people were being targeted at at rallies with all sorts of hateful rhetoric, journalists being called by Donald Trump despicable and dishonest, the most lying people he had ever met, etc., etc. So this is something that's unacceptable. There is no First Amendment right to threaten the safety and the freedom of American journalists. By contrast, there is a First Amendment right for American journalists to operate in freedom and safety. So taking all that, we realize now that we have to actually fight to defend that space, not just our rights, but- the factual space, because, Dana, what all this coincides with is this terrible tsunami, this virus of fake news, otherwise known as lies, which are peddled across social media, places like Facebook, with a massive, wide distribution. So for all those reasons, we have to fight to defend facts right now in what's been described as a post-truth world. You cited a tweet sent out by Donald Trump, in fact, right after his win, when there
2: were still demonstrators in the streets, and he said they were professional protesters incited by the media. What about that concerned you?
1: Well, you know, my blood ran cold when I saw that. First and foremost, the idea of professional protesters has been debunked by the very fake news writer who wrote it and made it up. But the second most importantly chilling thing was to hear the words incited by the media. Those are the kinds of words that we hear in the non-democratic part of the world, if you like, in places where uh, authoritarian leaders blame the press, demonize the press, use the press as the organized opposition. They target the press and set the press up as an opposition to their government. And they do it by subtly ratcheting up the accusations against the press. So inciting, sympathizing, associating, actually being terrorists and subversives. And as you know, journalists around the world are routinely locked up put in jail, put on trial on, on fa- phony tr- charges. So that's why that worried me very much, and I felt I had to, uh, you know, push back on that and take a stand against that. It's not just Trump, though, who's been critical of the media. Have journalists lost the public trust? In general, uh, the establishment press has lost some of the trust of the public. I would submit that it's for several reasons. One, and most especially, because of the tsunami of fake news that purports to be real news and therefore compromises the truth and therefore compromises what people believe to be the media. I would say also by the extreme political partisanship and the tribal corners that the press has been forced into in this hyper-political, hyperpartisan landscape. And then I would say one more thing that we must not just be talking heads. Our credibility is grounded in our experience and our unique experience as the eyes and ears of our viewers, our audience, our readers, our listeners, whoever are the consumers and our constituents, the people who we owe the basic truth, about what's going on around the world. The fact that we're doing less of that on the ground reporting, I think comes back to hurt us. So I really do hope that this moment is one where there's a call to arms to defend the fact-based landscape, to defend the truth, and to defend and recommit to a much greater real reportage around the world in every nook and cranny that we need to be in.